people have already had the conversation about how RPGs are a kind of theater, which I also appreciate and which is also obviously doing the exact same things. And it obviously shares a great deal on its face with improv. But a lot of the peculiarity of RPGs is also everybody knows what the theme is coming in and everybody knows that the goal of that theme is to actually get to a story end in a, in, in a way that improv is not like uniquely connected to in order to still be entertaining. And I think that that's like a really cool thing to be a part of as a writer to know what is working for the audience that is collectively telling the story and therefore knowing that if you told the story for anybody else who is just of the exact same emotional or intellectual space as this audience, you know that it's also going to work. Just like the best feedback you're ever going, you're ever going to get in a, a, a feedback group ever, which is probably why we work so well as a feedback group as well. So yeah, I guess like in my brain, it just like all kind of comes together as I am a GM in this game because it's the only time I get to be a poet without having to write four minutes of text beforehand. Yeah, because there's there's a great freedom in a shared agreement that we don't have to go beyond a first draft, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when we're not playing as performance, when it's just we're playing because we enjoy playing games with one another. We don't have to go back and be like, oh, can I do that take again? Oh, I can say that again. Like any inclination to self-edit can ideally more easily be held at bay because we're embracing the emergent ephemerality of this is a thing we're all making together and it doesn't have to be deathless prose that's on a bunch of dead trees forever or, you know, in ones and zeros forever. This is just about, it's more like a, a jam session, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are some ways in which that's good and then some ways in which it can be a little difficult. Like, there have definitely been times where we've cut off a session and then I've been in like, oh god, I wish I could ask for a reshoot of this scene. Like, sure. can I just have another shot at that line? And, you know, that's a way in which I'm jealous of more produced shows and podcasts than our own. Like, Dungeons and Daddies is, I think, my gold standard for editing and, and retakes, especially. And just like, mm -hmm. you know, there are some times where, like, I go for a joke and it does not land right. And God, I wish I could do a retake on that. Right. Yeah. And then we get stuff like Worlds Beyond Number. Worlds Worlds Beyond Number is the podcast. Worlds Without Number is the RPG. Okay. Um, yes. In Worlds Beyond Number, they position it as a narrative play podcast. Mm -hmm. And it is specifically... You do actual play, and then you do stuff to it, and you turn it into an entertainment product, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is a more, there's a conscious division, or there's like an end of a spectrum where right. you're caring more about the post production. You know, they're doing composition. There's the different types of editing, and like, okay, this this art form of actual play is very young, and there's still conversations about like, do we want to take a chunk of it and put it, point it somewhere else and call it a different thing? Like the form is still very fluid. Mm -hmm. Like 
Very interestingly, I feel like a lot of this observation is similar to the observation people make about the difference between uh, theater and film or television. Because as you were giving those examples, I keep remembering that obvious, very funny thing that happened one time in an episode of Critical Role, where GM Matthew Mercer was attempting to say, quiver and shift, but instead said, shiver and quiff. One of those words do not exist. And as a result, it just became a running joke every time he attempted to describe something obviously having a, a similar reaction, they would just kind of blurt that out. And I might be like, why is this happening? I made a mistake. Please forget the thing. And I like, as a, me personally as a stage manager, this is not for anybody else. I don't think anybody else needs to do this the way I do it. But I like the idea that this is live. Like, I like the idea that in much the same way that if a high school theater Shakespeare production goes poorly because someone backstage hasn't gotten their costume on yet and somebody has to vamp for four minutes, <laughs> I like the idea that we can, in this moment, have to figure out how to make the thing do the thing. And obviously, it's part of the challenge is obviously that sometimes the struggle is we want to make this funnier or more evocative and we don't know how. But I think not knowing how is kind of what also gets us to the point where we obviously did the intense, incredibly reckless, foolish thing that will happen later on in that session. That is obviously very cool and we're glad that we came to that conclusion. And sometimes you have to kind of accept that both of those are the nature of improv. Uh, because I think that as we get more comfortable with each other, it will become a whole lot easier for us to do the things that we constantly find engaging and funny. And that just requires us to continue playing with each other, which I already know is not a problem. Mm -hmm. All right. So from here, I think we want to shift to talking about a few more favorite moments or scenes from various Strange Friends series and one shots. And we're also very excited to hear about some of your favorites, folks who are watching live, because then we can take things that we know that you're interested in and talk them a little bit more. Iori, are you okay? To, do you have a, a favorite scene or moment in mind that we haven't talked about yet that you want to bring up? That we haven't talked about yet. Okay, it has to be Ring shouting on fucking Porter's Day! <laughs> Epic. Epic. If I recall correctly, at this point, two people. my audio levels there. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I recall correctly, that scene is predicated by two people being dead and one person being almost dead. <laughs> yeah, because I think I think they said it having just jumped down onto and stabbed someone with a halberd, yes. jumping <laughs> off of a second story building. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think actually right before that was when Skelly shot someone. <laughs> Yeah. or something it was very much just like it's time for violence yeah because that was the that was the rescue um yes. after the attempted kidnapping right mm -hmm. a yeah. severely injured ash right. hold up with crossroads yeah. in the staircase of that building yeah yep. just being like small friend please don't bleed out Speaking of Crossroads, Rignell says, favorite moment, Crossroads stuffing itself with crickets so it would be partially made of meat and thus alive now. 
Um, so again, referring back yes. to the the crickets and our uh, "I am totally made of meat" command and the crossroads callback that we have in Crossroads Kebab and Fractal Spire. I think if I were going to pull one out of our um, Cindered Seal game, I actually loved when we dumped the blue coat. <laughs> half in, half out of the water and let God sort them out. Because <laughs> that that felt like not only just a really kind of dramatic moment, but it was just so character consistent for us at that point. This notion of like, again, we don't always choose violence. We are not necessarily intrinsically inclined to violence. We're not, our, our goal is not to take over or bring anyone down. Our goal is just to stop being fugitives. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to find the thing that is causing us this problem so that we can no longer have a problem. And as a result, we made that choice where the choices the choices were, do we kill this guy or do we let this guy live? And we chose neither. <laughs> and somehow that was just so dramatically perfect. Mike? I think I want to shout out a scene with Kat that stands out to me which was, it's late in Fractal Spire, and this is a scene that we a little bit, like, not choreographed, but talked about a scene being a scene that we wanted to do. Which, late in the series, Vic going to Cat and basically trying to let Cat, let Cat off the hook for saving Vic's life. Mm-hmm. That if Vic is her fated person that she has to like protect and has to come back to and Vic seeing and interpreting the stress that's accumulating on cat and trying to, to make the argument that they're not that important because I'm being dead wrong that they're not that important. <laughs> right. Cause it, in that I think s- go ahead. one of the things that was really exciting to me about that was knowing that the reasons Vic are important are all predicated on them surviving this adventure so that they can go do the important thing three years from now. Like, Kat was very difficult to play because she always needed to have that level of big picture thinking. But when it worked, it was really exciting to be looking at the chessboard from that vantage point. Yeah, and it, it felt good because it mirrored a really like much more a a really fraught scene in like the first show episode when Vic um, is, is trying to connect with Kat and ask about like the time when Euphony disappeared and And she threw her hair accessory off the bridge. Wait, did that? I do not remember if that happened in our session zero or in our actual broadcast. I think that was in broadcast, right? Oh yeah. I think that's broadcast. I mean, if not, everyone's very confused right now. Yeah, and that's really cool because with Vic, I was struggling with the kind of great man theory in terms Mm -hmm. of like, oh, and in a revolutionary movement, you have this one person who is super, super important when there's a lot of the kind of the writing and this philosophy of like leftist radical thinking that is about putting community and systems first and Mm -hmm. like de-emphasizing the importance of the hero and like... Mm -hmm playing a character who is a hero, but also trying to engage in those systems. Like that was an interesting mm-hmm. thing, but cat then cats pushing back against that was, I think really cool and continued that conversation mm-hmm. in a way that I found really interesting. And then Brandon, the way that I was, 
the way that I was interacting with that particular theory, sorry to interrupt, yeah, yeah, is that like those systems necessary for a healthy post-revolution could not be built unless Vic was actively involved in building them. Like Vic, less the hero of the revolution than just someone who needs to be making blueprints and organizing community aid. Yeah, because then Brandon picked up on what Kat was saying. And so in the epilogue, we got to see the beginnings of that Vic that is mm-hmm. who Kat had been fighting to protect. Yes. Plus just Kat being able to like go so instantly and seamlessly into that intensity of emotion. Being like, because Iori was just like, oh, ah, here I have this trick and it's going to be uh, heart-wrenching in a great way. I just want to, because I know that Iori expressed a lot of uh, doubt about uh, playing Cat in that series, I just want to clarify again. I know that like at three different points, Brandon, I DM'd you and said, please let me kill her off next episode. We haven't even used my second NPC. We'll convert him to a player character. It'll all be fine. <laughs> just let me kill Cat. Yes, this came up. But like, personally for me, I just want to clarify. There are lots of things about the flow of the story that I wouldn't have figured out without Cat's engagement. Especially because one of the things that I'm also very grateful of when we had the deck of reveries is that uh, you were always in control of what those cards meant, and that clarified for me a potential direction that story can go in. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, everything that we know about the quote-unquote good ending was a thing that you qualified, and I think that that made it very clear what kinds, what characters and what kinds of interactions you were uh, deeply invested in, and I wanted to fulfill those things as much as possible. And I do think that you did, in fact, have a part to play in making those things happen. I Sometimes I you don't always have to press the big red button to actually solve the thing. Who the future cat sending messages back to the cat we see in Fractal Spire is as a person. That was something I struggled a lot with during, like, playing cat. You want to you wanna hear a secret? What? It's changed. That, that, that cat has changed at least twice. Mm-hmm. You've interacted with you've interacted with at least two separate personalities of cat from the future <laughs> at this point. Right. Well, because there was that amazing. There was that like the glimpse of the darkest timeline section where I think there were three versions of cat that all interacted with each other in one scene. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. <laughs> but like every time you got a card, that that cat's attitude was different was much different to you at that point. In part because you were always very antagonistic towards at least one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kat was very fundamentally antagonistic towards herself because she did not like the person she was to get through the world. Which, again, is girls by moon, girl by moonlight, rules as written. Um, yeah. <laughs> everything sucks, I'm sorry. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be very interesting in like one to two years to play at the brink of the abyss, which is, as Andrew has said, like the the most optimistic of the playsets of Girl by Moonlight, and see just how much breadth there is for that same troop 
you know, a lot of different things are going to be different, but like exploring how much, how many different games there are in that game is a thing that I'm really excited mm-hmm. to see, you know, a variety of people do now that the, the crowdfunding has, has succeeded and the game is forthcoming. Yeah. Yes, I'm really looking forward to seeing some other groups' takes on Girl by Moonlight. I'm not going to lie, one of the things that I want to do, not in a hurry, but one of the things that I do want to do is to have us play what is the alternate version of Fractal Spire if, we, if all of these exact same characters were just in another setting. But yeah. I'm going to add another cool moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just go for it, go it. for it. With no segue whatsoever. When Ruthless came into the real world. Yeah. Oh my oh god. My god. There was just a collective, like, shock and awe. I don't know. We all flipped out. And it was worth flipping out about because what the hell? And I think that, like, that, that as a moment. such a moment. Yeah. It, no. And it, 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 it was so cool. And, and not just because of the intrinsic what the fuck factor of it, pardon my language, but also because the game as it's designed does have not just a kind of a clear boundary between the dream and the real world, but also it provides for that kind of contagion, that kind of contamination up in between the two worlds. And it was so cool to see it manifest that way by having this particular character who in some ways is the most amoral and the most ruthless. And I, I amoral is probably not even the right word, but like just ruthless. Having Ruthless being in a world where ruthlessness is not socially acceptable in a lot of spheres, and more importantly, was not acceptable to any of the rest of us. So, and the, just the, the, the repercussions of that were very cool. Yeah, and props to Yoi for playing Ruthless in that context. But also, I think that crystallized for me something that I really love about Brandon's GMing, which is... Brandon throwing off their weights from being in like the Dragon Ball Z, like super training chamber or whatever the name of which I don't remember. Mm-hmm. That for Brandon is the world doesn't have to make sense. We're going to just punch through expectations about how like metaphysics operates. That is, that is Brandon at uh, like power over 9,000. And I think you should hold yourself back from that less frequently, Brandon. Yeah. The other moment where that happened was when uh, Nina pulled, what's his name, sister out of the dream. That was like an extremely strange moment of just critical success roles. And that, that was one where it could have gone very differently. And I think Brandon even said that it was meant to go very differently, but because of the success of the roles, Right, and just like leaned in, like, all right, let's do this. We're going into the weird place. <laughs> like, the good place, nah, the bad place, nah, it's the weird place. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm very flattered that you, that you admire my instincts in that regard. Um, I tend, uh, like, a, a thing, a, a personal policy as a GM that I try to keep in mind as often as possible is always turn left at Twin Peaks. It was such a Twin Peaks moment. My God. Amazing. Girl by well, I mean, um, that series of uh, Girl by Moonlight makes it very easy to lean on engaging very weirdly with the metaphysics because I was drawing very strongly on Paprika because we had literally just seen it in preparation for uh, some of the dream metaphysics in the game. But like that Nina moment in particular, 
like it, a lot of a lot of moments like that one which reminds me of my other like one of my uh, very big moments in fractal spire was cat entering that one suspect's dream whose name totally escapes me ah siobhan um mm. and being trapped in siobhan's accident time loop yeah and knowing that this was manufactured as a punishment and interacting with it by going, I still don't like you, but this sucks. Mm. And even you don't deserve it. Because none of those things were supposed to happen. Every interaction with Siobhan post rendering Siobhan catatonic mm-hmm. uh, was me taking the universe at its, uh, at its word and then finding ways to respond to the already very intense thing that had happened, which is um, Ruthless defeating Siobhan in this way in the first place. And then just like paying all of that forward as much as possible. So in a lot of those situations, I was just like, if the conflict of this world is the dream is becoming corrupted, what does that mean for people who do not know that this is a conflict? What if your dreams became real? I think that's actually very troubling. Um... So I wanted to fulfill that as much as possible. And while it does kind of suck that we didn't get more opportunities for that to play out in the real world as a result, I'm glad that it played out in that way for you all. Because it meant that you all got to witness what that was supposed to look like and got to rectify it before it became an issue, while knowing that it was a potential issue. Before even getting to see that it was tied to everything else. I'm trying to think of some favorite moments from one-shots that we've done. Uh, we talked a little bit about Blades in the Deep already, which was a lovely time, but either stuff from like the world-building game that we just did or from any of the one-shots that, that folks have run. I have some favorite moments of thing of like when I was running favorite things that y'all did, but I'm curious to hear from, from other folks about maybe one-shot things. This is actually a hard question for me because, like, during one-shots, especially if we are using a new mechanic, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm struggling so hard to keep up in the moment that I am not forming memories during the game. And then, right. like, I don't know what happened unless I go back and watch the replay. Right. I think my clearest memory is still Stone the Crows. And... That might be my favorite one-shot, to be honest. That was such a good game. And also, I think I disproportionately love Stone the Crows because we had gotten so dark with Fractal Spire that it was just an immense pressure release for me. For sure, yeah. No, I, I was just going to say, I'm trying, I am similarly to you trying to save uh, because I have been thinking about our uh, Family of Blades game. <laughs> Um, but I'm similarly saving other people's cool, uh, cool reactions to that for after other people have already spoken about their interaction as players. So, another one of my favorite Iori characters is their character from Slugbuster or Slugblaster. Part, is part... that the game where we ended with me and the Chipotle causing a riot, or was it the Carly Rae Jepsen one, the one where I caused the riot? Because it, I, I, I think the, I was a, I was a gremlin in both of those, right? Yeah. <laughs> Slugblaster ended with somebody parachuting the pizza into yeah. the party. Yeah, you were all parachuting in 
and nailed the landing and became the kind of toast of the town and the party. That was a great yes, moment. Yes, I remember that. That was beautiful. The we, Slug Blaster was a lot of fun. It really was. Like, yeah. I love the extreme cowabunga attitude <laughs> of that game. Yeah, like, my, my prep for that was, a fair bit was, like, finding stuff in the book that was fun to do something with, and then the rest of it was, okay, I've immersed myself in the vibe of what I think the book is going for for this game, and then coming up with my own stuff to add to it and feel like it went with everything. But I think that game really worked because everybody embraced that, like, the idea in the game that this is about doing cool stuff and feeling cool and getting the kind of clout within your peer group mm-hmm. because so much of the game is pointed toward that. And I think without it, it's a, it would be really easy for everybody to like, just be more circumspect and not as like, and take, not as take, don't uh, not take as many risks, but with a forged game, it's about taking those risks. Right. Mm-hmm. So Brandon, you had some things you were holding back. Maybe don't hold them back. <laughs> Right, so everything from uh, our Family of Blades game was uh, actually very wild to me. But I think, like, in particular, the way that everybody in that very last moment kind of cemented on this this is the role that I'm going to play in this final opportunity to get the one-up on, this, on uh, the antagonist was a very good, like... This game is a very good opener for people getting to see what these strange friends is capable of, in my opinion, out of all of our one-shots. Because it's not just everybody committed to their role in play, but everybody committed to performing that role in a way that is, like, dramatically uh, both, uh, like, very seriously engaged in the action of the scene, but also trying to be as entertaining as possible. And the thing that kind of sticks for me in that moment is Iori's character is not, has not initially been asked to get in any fights at all, is just supposed to be observing. And then the moment someone steps out of there, the, the moment that an NPC is about to potentially witness the rest of the team getting it, engaging in the plan, just decides, let's just knock a guy out with a broomstick. And then a fight is now happening in this other room, and it's like nobody. This wasn't requested or prepared, but at least there, at least the enemies are falling. So this is still ideal. Uh, I so mean, yeah, every- just when we're playing, even when I do a muscle build, I get so few opportunities to punch anything. Like I think. When I played Campanella in those two one-shots, my great regret is that I did not do any punching, even though I had picked a fighter build. So, like, for once, I saw an opportunity for violence. I was sufficiently staffed to pursue violence. I was not letting that go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I agree that family of, A Family of Blades was a really good one-shot, but I also felt like it was an amazing pilot. If we were doing pilot season for ourselves, which we were not really consciously doing, that game as a pitch to ourselves and one another of here's some fun we could have, 
I think did it like was very good. And so I, I give credit to the way that that guy, the game is designed in how it made it really easy to showcase characters very quickly and in like some of their relationships to each other. I also had fun in that game playing more of the kind of like brainy in charge person character because typically I try to fade more into the background and let other people take on that role. So it, it was fun to to step into that for a yeah, bit. I really loved seeing you be a leader in that game. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah. It's confirmed. Val, you should play more spider-like characters in these games. Mm-hmm. Right, because that's it's all about figuring things out ahead of time, right? And I think the game itself, actually, especially with the flashback mechanics, like it, it sort of supports you in that, right? Like you don't have to have figured everything out in advance. You can, as you're doing the thing, be like, "Oh, but I had actually already figured this out in advance," and then spend a little stress and take care of business that way. So, um, it is it is flexible in that respect, and I think that's really cool about it. Yeah. One thing I do appreciate about doing one shots is that. Because I'm not thinking about, oh, God, well, uh, what happens on the next downtime session and stuff? I'm much more liberal about spending my stress. Just when you can, you're in a one shot, it's so much easier to just drive that character like you stole it, right? Yeah. Stress is just a clock. I think especially in the early days of playing Ash, particularly, it was very hard for me to think of stress as a resource to spend in pursuit of my goals. Instead, it was similar to harm in the ways that I parsed it and therefore tried to avoid it. Now I think I'm a lot more reckless about how I spend it, and that has significantly improved how I play. Right. I think the the lesson I would take take from that to present to people who are not maybe familiar with Forge in the Dark is to not... don't think of or look at stress as a hit point track. Mm-hmm. It's Which not. is exactly the mistake I was making, yeah. Um, it is a resource, as Yori said. And the game expects that you will spend stress, right? In Blades, specifically one of the player um, like best practices is use your stress. And I think any Forge game that wants to maintain more or less that cadence and that like hurtling forward, barely in control, escalation of stakes that can happen in a Forge in the Dark game on the campaign scale is happens largely, if not, not entirely, but a big element of that is people spending their stress to be able to do amazing things and block, resi- like block bad consequences so that everybody can swing harder. Mm-hmm. And also, all the games have, like, for when you overspend, for when you hit, you know, your full stress bar, basically, all of the games have mechanics for dealing with the impact of that. And in a lot of ways, that stuff is also really good drama. Again, like, having to play through my character has experienced this trauma and now must undergo some sort of therapeutic something to deal with the trauma... Or whether it be in Blades where it's like, okay, I have to indulge my vice or whatever, or I'm I'm now, I've taken on this extra element, it's not an ability, but you know, like a role or something where um, now I have to role play what happens if I am suddenly, you know, plagued with horrifying nightmares all the time. If I'm, you know, and you're just taken out of play too for when a lot of this happens, which is its own cool element that... 
uh, a stage manager can can play with and uh, that the other characters then can react to and deal with in their own ways. So like the games themselves give you the tools for if you use all your stress, if you find yourself in that position, what happens and how do you act and react and, and deal with that? Mm-hmm. I think for, I mean, what I've noticed um, come up in a lot of people's discussions about Blades is that for some players, the consequences of taking too much stress is a kind of harm. Like, taking a trauma is the same as quote-unquote losing, or especially because there is, a, there is an end state for your character. There is a way that you can essentially die, and that is taking too many traumas. But one, that is a very, that is a very long ways away, and two, until you get to that point, a lot of, um, a lot of people don't tend to think about those traumas as um, essentially another narrative hook, which I think is the more valuable way to think about it. You have now gained a very obvious character trait about you that your GM is now reminded that they can pull on because it's now on your character sheet. Plus, when they pull on it, you gain more XP. Yeah. So you actually get stronger the more traumatized you are, which is either definitely how the world works or not how the world works. So I'm not sure what message Blazing the Dark is actually telling about the real world. But I think that um, leaning into that as often as possible for the trauma is also very narratively engaging as well. Yeah, I think there'd be a whole interesting panel discussion to have on the way that how trauma is written for Blades informs or presets designers' expectations about what an analogous or identical mechanic should do in other Forge in the Dark games, and then to reinterpret and uh, interrogate that through questions of tone and setting. Because mm-hmm. that's something I've been struggling with, or I've, grappling, I think, more than struggling with um, in genre knots. Like, a little bit of struggle, and, and I've gotten to a place where I feel like I'm in a better place with it, and but I would love to have that conversation with a number of other designers or to bring those designers on for other like uh, out-of-character discussions uh, with the Strange Friends, the way that we had Andrew on to talk about their game and Fractal Spire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Taking notes. Right? Uh, invite Andrew to tell John Harper <laughs> that the way that you take stress in Girl by Moonlight is better than Blades. I did I mean, not is say it that. better? Yeah, I was gonna say it's more. It's it's that's. I the mean, they're different things. Variation. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Like they they function differently mechanically because the worlds, the play sets, the the entire structure of it. Um, even even though the fundamental underlying stuff is you know forged in the dark, it is still like the games are different, the vibes are different, and because the vibes are different, they are going to have different things functioning differently mechanically. And I think that is good. I think that that works well for them in, in their distinct ways. Yeah, I think yeah. The, the takeaway for me is make deliberate choices in design, but do your best to understand the aesthetic and mechanical intent behind choices from, in this case, Blades in the Dark. Okay, what were the design intents? What were the results or the outputs that the designer and the team the designer was working with was attempting to create so that you understand all of how the mechanisms interact 
instead of going, okay, well, I know that these four gears together with one chain, it works because I know that Blades in the Dark works. Is this the where is this where we drop the 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 expensive ten dollar word Ludo narrative? Right. Well, I was also thinking that this could be where we shout out um, world building for masochists because choose don't assume is a big motto that they have in the show where when you're doing world building, they encourage people to make specific choices to have the world operate in certain ways, as opposed to just uncritically replicating things that you've seen or heard elsewhere. Um, And that if you want to kind of go that extra mile with world building, you make specific choices and interrogate assumptions. Because world, for, world building for masochists is doing a Kickstarter right now for an anthology. And I will make sure to put that link into the show notes because there are, is still enough time for folks who are listening on podcast or watching on YouTube to uh, check that out and back it. But don't bury the lead, Mike. Featuring stories by Mike Underwood and Valerie Valdez. Right. Uh, I like, I, I would have had to go to the thing to double check because I wouldn't want to say that you had a story in there that you didn't because then I would feel terrible. No, it, both of us are in yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, knowing you both, of course, both of you are in it. Um, so I'm excited for that. It has been a tough time on Twitter to promote a Kickstarter. <laughs> it's been a tough time on Twitter to be on Twitter. Yes. It is a very, like, hell of a week. Lemon, it's Tuesday. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But every day. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, games are great. Games are and great. You should also play them. feel like we could probably start wrapping up. Is there any extra bit or last thing that folks want to toss in before we remind everyone who we are and bid folks good night? We love and miss you, yoy. Mm-hmm. Yes, that. This is true. <laughs> I do also want to say, I guess the thing that I want to say is, I am spoiled to be able to play with you all as a player and as a writer. I think more so than instilling very good creative habits in me through watching you all engage uh, in RP, you have also encouraged me to be fully invested in my bad habits. And I'm very excited to see how that manifests in my creative process as well, for which I thank you all. That which makes you weird makes you special. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Any other closing thoughts? Uh, You need to make that shirt, you know. We do. Someday we'll have merch, yes, eventually. It is on my list of things to get to, but I need... I need more more of me. I need more mics to work on this, or I need to yeah. move mountains so that other other folks have more time. I just need a pin I just need a, a an enamel pin that says no dots dice empty and its companion pin to be a D6 that has no symbols, no pips <laughs> on it whatsoever. So why are you wearing a, a pin that's just a box? It's not a box. All right, then uh, why don't we do our outros and remind everyone where folks can find us, starting with Yuri. Let's see, where can you find me? Um, I mean, I am still on Twitter, I guess, at Yuri Kusano, for as long as Twitter exists. After Twitter goes down, I will not be acquiring further social media, so you should probably just 
look at kasanoiori.com every so often for updates. I have an Instagram, yori underscore Instagram. I don't think I've updated that in a while. Maybe I should do that. Did I put my novella on my Instagram? I have a terrible, terrible suspicion that I didn't. But that's the other thing you can do to support me. Go buy my novella from Neon Hemlock. It is called Hybrid Heart. If you have feelings about idols, surveillance culture, social media culture, you will probably feel really uncomfortable with this book. In a good way. Debatable. (laughs) (laughs) You will enjoy the book. You will just hate most of the men in it. You will enjoy and the that's book, okay. but you might want to become a terrorist about the in- entertainment industry after you read it. All right, Valerie. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I am Valerie Valdez. You can find me on social media as either Valerie Valdez or Valerie Valdez author. I did not write Dora the Explorer. I'm so sorry for everyone who keeps finding me <laughs> while they're looking for the other Valerie Valdez. It not me, but uh, I I am now on. I don't know, Blue Sky, and I'm on Instagram. I am periodically on Facebook, but almost never. Uh, you can also find me on my website, ValerieValdez.com. And uh, this month, if you happen to be an Audible user, uh, the audiobook of Prime Deceptions is on sale for $5.99. It's almost cheap. Nice. It's not, it's not that cheap. <laughs> it's pretty good. Brandon. And... As for me, you can find me, Brandon O'Brien, almost everywhere on the internet at The Rising Tides. That's T-I-T-H-E-S. But I can promise you I'm not actually going to be using any other social media as heavily as I was cursed to use Twitter. So the very easiest ways to find me are to follow my newsletter, which you can also find at my writer's website, which is brandonobrien.xyz. And please subscribe to my Patreon so you, so you can also help me live. There's also a thing that you can do. And I wrote a book called Can You Sign My Tentacle? And you can buy it wherever you buy your poetry books. Um, and I think that it's really rad. And if you haven't read it yet, I'd love it if you read it. Also, before I forget, even though it's no longer Pride, there are still a manner of days left in the Itch Queer Games Bundle, which actually has some of my games in it. So if you want to possess 500 pieces of independent queer art for the price of a AAA game, you should definitely check it out. Very cool. Yeah, there's a ton of great stuff on there. I am Mike Underwood. I publish as Michael R. Underwood. I am at Mike R. Underwood on Twitter and uh, at Mike R. Underwood.bluesky.social, I think. Blue Sky is a little bit strange in a way that I'm not totally sure about just yet. Speculate is also on Blue Sky at Speculate. And uh, you can find some information about the Genre Knots role playing game at Michael R. Underwood.itch.io slash Genre Knots uh, as I'm turning my attention back to it for reasons we have discussed earlier and other secret, cooler reasons. Not cooler, they're, all, they're also cool. Playing genre knots with the strange friends has been a delight of my life. So that is all of that. Thank you so much to everybody for joining us today. Thank you for your questions and for uh, you know sharing uh, in the love that you have for the work that we have done, kind of performing and pr- participating in games with one another. Uh, 
without the strange friends and without like doing actual play for an audience throughout the pandemic, my life would be much, much worse. So thank you to everyone who had a role in that. Thank you to Greg slash Arv for being the host of our absolute preposterous shenanigans uh, and being very supportive of us being wacky. So that is all of that. And now I will say thank you. Take care. Good night. Good day. Happy time zone. Happy time zone. The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band, The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com. Hi, everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend arvaneleron.com, A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N.com, where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign, which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players, and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there and over here. You can subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, and many other fine podcast providers. Thanks, and we'll see you over there.